Hello and welcome to the 14th episode in our series of Commercial Litigation Update podcasts. I'm Anna Pertoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Presenting with me as usual is Maura McIntosh, who is a professional support consultant in the litigation team. And today we also have Ramya Virabathran, who is an associate in the disputes team. In this edition, Maura will look at the most recent decisions on trial witness statements and a decision that sheds a bit more light on what parties can do when they've received a draft judgment under embargo. I'll then speak briefly about some upcoming changes to the circumstances in which proceedings can be served on parties outside the jurisdiction. And finally, Ramya will look at an interesting recent decision on consequential losses. So I'll hand over to Maura to start. Thanks, Anna. So we've spoken previously on this podcast about a number of cases where the courts have imposed sanctions for serious failures to comply with the new regime for trial witness statements that was introduced last April, in particular where witness statements have included matters that were outside the witness's own knowledge or mere commentary on documents or argument. And typically the courts have required offending statements to be redrafted so that they comply with the practice direction. But it's clear that in extreme cases, a witness statement might be struck out entirely. Today, I want to talk about a couple of slightly different aspects raised in recent cases. So the first is Primavera Associates in Hartsmere, where the court held that certain passages in a witness statement served by the claimant should be struck out for non-compliance, but it refused to strike out the whole statement. The defendant had argued that the statement should be struck out entirely because it failed to comply with the spirit and the letter of the practice direction, going beyond the specific paragraphs that the defendant had pointed to as examples of non-compliance. But the judge said it was for the defendant to allege and prove non-compliance. The court would examine the deficiencies that were identified, but the defendant couldn't just say that these were examples and therefore shift the burden to the claimant to show that the rest of the statement complied. And there was a similar point regarding the defendant's complaint that the statement failed to set out how well the witness recalled matters and whether his memory had been refreshed by considering documents as required by the practice direction. The judge accepted that the witness had made no attempt at all to comply with that obligation, but In fact, that obligation applies only in relation to important disputed matters of fact, not more generally. And the defendant hadn't identified the matters to which it said the obligation attached. And the judge said he was not prepared to take the lead in searching the witness statement for these relevant matters and assessing their importance. And so he wouldn't take the matter further at that stage. So it shows if you want to raise issues about compliance with practice direction, uh, you need to be more specific in identifying the um, defects you, you, you allege. So the other case I want to mention on witness statements is Curtis and Zurich Insurance, which highlights, I think, the need to approach applications under the practice direction in a reasonable and proportionate manner or else risk cost sanctions as well as judicial criticism. So in this case, the claimant served 49 witness statements amounting to around 400 pages in total. 
And two months later, the defendant sent a letter with um, a schedule that uh, extended to 109 pages, which gave particulars of alleged non-compliance with the practice direction. And then ultimately it made an application raising these points that it had identified in the schedule. And the court struck out four of the statements entirely and uh, also struck out various parts of another witness statement, um, essentially because they contained commentary or opinion on documents or, or other matters falling outside the practice direction. But other aspects of the application did not succeed, including, for example, uh, an application to strike out stock phrases that the defendant said might indicate a common draftsman for some of the statements. The the court thought it wasn't necessary to take action in, in relation to those aspects. But the key point for our purposes is that despite having allowed some aspects of the defendant's application, the court still ordered the defendant to pay 75% of the claimant's costs on the indemnity basis. The judge said that many of the points the defendant had raised were petty or pointless and overall it thought that the defendant's aim in making the application was not to improve the efficiency of the trial process but rather it was tactical to seek to emasculate the evidence of one of the claimant's key witnesses. And the judge said an application under the practice direction should not be used as a weapon for the purpose of battering the opposition. Uh, and, and it's clear from this decision that a party who, who does that will be at risk on costs. The decision also, also shows that in some cases it may be more appropriate to leave matters of non-compliance with the practice direction to be dealt with at trial rather than raising a, a specific application in advance. The judge referred to a remark uh, made by Mr. Justice Fancourt in Greencastle and Payne, which we discussed previously on this podcast, uh, that it was not appropriate in that case to leave the dispute to be sorted out at trial. But the judge in Curtis said that that shouldn't be taken as expressing a general principle that it's never convenient or appropriate to leave matters of non-compliance with the practice direction until trial. Uh, All will depend on the facts and circumstances of the particular case. And here the judge thought it would have been more efficient to leave it all to be argued about at trial. I think presumably because the nature of the non-compliance was not such as would really have interfered significantly with the trial process. But as I say, it will all depend on the particular circumstances. And um, finally, for me, just a mention of the latest in a line of recent decisions concerning embargoes on draft judgments, where the court sends the draft judgment in confidence to the lawyers and the parties, typically a couple of days before it's handed down. Uh, The case is Match Group and Musmatch, and the court, uh, rather unsurprisingly, found there was a clear breach of the embargo where the defendant had disclosed the outcome to journalists, even though that was done on confidential terms and subject to an agreement that they would not publish anything until after formal handdown. It's it's not surprising that that was a a breach of the embargo. But the more interesting point is the court's finding that it was not a breach of the embargo to disclose the decision to a number of um, the party's employees who needed to know the result in order to prepare a press release and a customer video ready for hand down or to assess technical and design changes that might need to be made to the defendant's service in light of the judgment. So I think the decision is helpful in confirming that parties to litigation are entitled to take internal steps to prepare for publication of the judgment, 
including teeing up draft communications to customers or the press and considering any immediate operational impact. It's clear these are legitimate purposes within the embargo uh, in, in contrast to a previous case where uh, counsel or solicitors prepare their own draft press release, which, which the court said was, was a purpose that fell outside the embargo. But the, um, the present decision does emphasise that corporate parties who receive a draft judgment should still consider carefully which employees really need to know the result in order to prepare for publication. Uh, as the court said, uh, the more people who are told the result, the greater the risk that the judgment will be used beyond the permitted purposes or might be disclosed inappropriately. And that could lead to proceedings being pursued for contempt of court or at the very least, uh, the sort of public criticism that we've seen in these cases. Thanks, Maura. I want to talk about the new and expanded gateways for service out of the jurisdiction that have been approved by the Civil Procedure Rule Committee and we understand are due to take effect in October. This is significant because post-Brexit, if you can't serve proceedings on your defendant within England and Wales, you need the court's permission to serve out unless the claim is covered by a jurisdiction clause in favour of the English court or it's a consumer or employment claim. To get permission, you need to establish a good arguable case that the claim falls within at least one of the gateways set out in practice direction 6B, as well as a serious issue to be tried and that England is the appropriate forum for the dispute to be heard. So the gateways are important. If your claim doesn't fall within one of them, then that's the end of the road so far as suing in England is concerned. The CPR Service Subcommittee divided the proposed changes into three categories, anticipating that some would be more controversial than others, although in fact all the proposals were accepted by the full Civil Procedure Rule Committee without opposition. The result will be a significant expansion of the gateways, so that I think it's fair to say it'd be difficult to think of many claims with any real connection to England that won't fall within some gateway or other. Now, I'm not going to go through all the changes, but for example, there's a new specific gateway for negative declarations where a corresponding claim brought against the claimant would have fallen within certain of the gateways. There are new gateways for contempt applications and for Norwich Pharmacal and Bankers Trust applications. New gateways for breaches of trust or fiduciary duty within the jurisdiction or whether legal relationship came into existence in the jurisdiction. The tort, constructive trust, fiduciary duty and breach of confidence and privacy gateways are extended to claims governed by English law. And there are new gateways for claims against third parties for unlawfully causing or assisting in breaches of contract, trust, fiduciary duty or confidentiality, privacy, where the relevant relationship or the breach has certain connections with the jurisdiction. The expansion of the gateways appears to be in line with the court's approach in recent cases, 
which have taken an expansive view of the gateways on the basis that the foreign convenience test would act as a filter where there's only a weak connection to the jurisdiction. So most significantly in the Brownlee case last year, the Supreme Court took a very wide view of the tort gateway, finding that it extended at any rate in the in the personal injury context to pretty much any damage experienced uh, within the jurisdiction. So although these changes are significant, it's not clear that they will result in more international cases being heard by the English courts. Claimants are, are still going to have to show that England is the convenient forum and that test is likely to prove more difficult to satisfy post-Brexit given that the English court is no longer obliged to exercise jurisdiction over anchor defendants domiciled in the jurisdiction as it was under the Brussels regime. And there will probably be no great effect on the costs involved in an application for permission to serve out, since, as well as the foreign convenience point, claimants will still need to establish a serious issue to be tried, and will often put in extensive evidence to ensure compliance with the obligation of full and frank disclosure, uh, since the application is heard without notice to the defendant and the permission can be overturned in a, a future jurisdiction challenge if the court thinks there's something it should have been told but wasn't. There are some more uh, fundamental proposals that have recently been put forward by two Oxford professors, Briggs and Dickinson, which would aim to streamline the process, including getting rid of the expensive permission stage for something more akin to the tick box approach in the in the Brussels regime. But that, that's likely to be some way off, even assuming there is buy-in from the private international law community and the judiciary and government. That's it from me. I'll now hand over to Ramya. Thanks, Anna. I'm going to look at a case called Soteria and IBM, which highlights the need for parties negotiating exclusion clauses to think carefully about what losses they want to exclude liability for and ensure the clause is clear. This is, of course, easier said than done. In this case, the defendant contracted to supply the claimant with a new IT system and to manage that system for 10 years after installation. The project was delayed, the claimant refused to pay an invoice and the defendant served notice to terminate under the contract on the basis of that non-payment. The court later found that the defendant was not entitled to terminate and so was itself in repudiatory breach. The claimant sought damages of £132 million. This largely comprised the costs it had wasted in the expectation of receiving the new IT system. However, the judge found that the claimant's claim for wasted expenditure was entirely excluded by a contractual exclusion clause and so damages were awarded in a much lower sum. Simplifying the exclusion clause slightly, it provided that neither party would be liable for indirect or consequential losses 
or for loss of profit, revenue or savings. The trial judge held that the claim for wasted expenditure was caught by the exclusion of loss of profit, revenue or savings. This was because that was the essential character of the loss being claimed. Instead of trying to quantify a claim for lost profit or savings, a claimant is generally entitled to claim wasted expenditure. They would do this by relying on a rebuttable presumption that the value of the contractual benefit lost must be at least equal to the amount the claimant was prepared to spend in order to obtain the benefit. But the trial judge considered that this was merely a different way of quantifying the loss and did not change the essential character of the loss. She found that it was still a claim for lost profit or savings and so was caught by the exclusion clause in this case. However, the Court of Appeal disagreed. It started by considering the ordinary and natural meaning of the words used in the exclusion clause. The question was whether, as a matter of language, the phrase loss of profit, revenue, savings encompassed wasted expenditure. The court held that a reasonable person in the position of the contracting parties would not have understood those words to cover wasted expenditure. This conclusion was confirmed by two principles that apply to the construction of exclusion clauses. First, the more valuable the right the clause seeks to exclude, the clearer the language of any exclusion clause will need to be. This is sometimes called the Gilbert Ash principle. Second, the more extreme the consequences of the exclusion clause, the more stringent the court must be before construing it in a way that allows the party in breach to avoid liability. Both of these principles pointed towards a strict reading of the clause in question. In the Court of Appeals view, Losses of profit or savings were a fundamentally different type of loss to wasted expenditure. Loss of profit or savings refers to what would have happened if the contract had been performed. Wasted expenditure, in contrast, was quote-unquote a pure accounting exercise. In the Court of Appeals view, it made commercial sense that while speculative and uncertain losses were excluded by the contract, wasted expenditure, which was easily ascertainable, was not so excluded. In any case, if the defendant had wanted to exclude wasted expenditure, it could have easily done so by including an express reference to wasted expenditure in the clause. So what do we take from this decision? Firstly, it identifies the differences between a claim for wasted expenditure and a claim for loss of profit or savings. It suggests that merely referring to claims for loss of profit or savings in your exclusion clause is unlikely to be successful in excluding claims for wasted expenditure. So the practical message is this. If you want to exclude claims for wasted expenditure, you should say so expressly. This will be particularly important in circumstances where the counterparty is likely to incur significant expenditure in anticipation of receiving the benefit contracted for.
If that expenditure is not covered by your exclusion clause, you may find that the clause doesn't offer much protection in the event of a breach. More generally, this case acts as a reminder of the two principles I mentioned relating to the construction of exclusion clauses, which the courts continue to apply. Namely, the more valuable the right and the more extreme the consequences of excluding it, the clearer the language needs to be. Thank you, Ramya and Maura, and to all of you for listening. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. We'll be back with another update in early autumn.